This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how artists, educators, and cultural practitioners can change the world one community at a time. We believe that young people are our world's greatest asset and recognize that we, as the adults who are dedicated to their creative development, have work to do so they can thrive. Listeners are invited each week to learn and laugh while envisioning new creative futures through the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. Jeff here with my co-host, Madeline. Madeline, how have you been? It is summertime. It is summertime. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I am super busy, as always, with all things ITAC and our conference coming up and our new curriculum launching and all that good stuff. Um, And I'm also just back from a month in Paris, which was pretty lovely. Um, So I'm feeling refreshed and a bit more chic than normal. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was actually going to ask about that. How has the return been in your, like, busiest season Did you notice anything um, after several years of just being home, you know, finally traveling and and you actually spent some like real time on your trip, not just a quick visit, right? Yeah, so I I had the best time. It was so lovely. I always wanted to to move there to spend a good like a year Um, post Brexit. That's not possible for us anymore. So furious, but won't go into that. (laughs) Um, And so we did. We had the loveliest time. I went with my partner and... it was just everything is so beautiful and obviously Scotland's quite medieval looking right it's quite harsh looking with all the stone and the brick and everything and Paris is all you know renaissance and gorgeous and big twisty bits of iron on every single balcony and Mm -hmm. yeah the thing I'm sort of envied the most was the sort of cafe culture um it's so it was so warm it was like 40 degrees most days while we were there um and obviously in Scotland, it's raining a lot. So you're indoors, even without a pandemic, you are indoors of an evening. Um, and there we could be outside. We could sit at a table outside in the evening and like play cards or like have a glass of wine or something. And it was mm-hmm. so, oh, after so long indoors, it was really a lovely, complete shift of of culture and post-work vibes. Well, uh, in a way, we're having that cafe culture here as we record. It is just just past nine in the morning. I have my coffee. It is approaching your late afternoon on a Friday. So have a glass of wine and we can have our conversation <laughs> about uh, the conver- the dialogue that you had actually with a, a really incredible individual who I've had the mm-hmm. pleasure of meeting and collaborating with before. So tell us about your chat with Simon Sharkey. Yes. So Simon is a wee bit of a hero of mine. He's on our attack leadership committee now. So that's kind of cool. But in general, he is a pretty huge figure here in Scottish theatre, um, international theatre now, but particularly is well known here for having such a hand in founding our national theatre here in Scotland. Um, he has a massive background that you'll hear him talk about in participatory arts, in immersive drama, and in that kind of social impact through arts space that we're so keen to learn about on the podcast so he's kind of the perfect guest um he's been doing it forever at quite a high level and is one of someone who's sort of quite a big picture thinker so when you hear him talk about concepts and about 
the why of it all even the how-to but particularly the why it does kind of capture you and I often get swept up in these waves right and after I talk to him I'm always ready to like go out and change the world (laughs) so he's I'm really glad that we got to have this discussion and I won't reiterate too much what he broaches because people can hear for themselves in a little moment but a lot of really interesting ideas about how to radically shift what an institution is what it does the purpose and the responsibility of places like that in their communities and I think he's a a really great perspective to have weigh in on that. I agree so let's get out of the way let's have our audience take a listen and we'll come back on the flip side. Hi Simon welcome and thank you so much for being here to talk to me for the Why Change podcast. I'm so pleased to be able to talk with you and hear more about your work Um, To give a little background for people listening, Simon has recently joined ITAC's Leadership Committee, so he sits on our board, and you're also working with us on expanding School of the Impossible into Scotland, which is that project that's led by Francine Kleeman last year in Brazil, who was recently a guest on the podcast as well. We're both um, also recently attended the Wellbeing Summit for Social Change in Bilbao, and worked on ITAC Hub development together too. So we've worked on a few things together now. Um, But to get started, Simon, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, where you are in the world right now, and explain the work that you primarily do? Oh, wow. First of all, thanks very much, Madeline. It's it's a huge pleasure to be talking to you on this this podcast. And um, I'm looking forward to it and see what comes out of it. And to answer your question, I'm in Scotland, which is quite often, it's, uh, that's quite unusual because I'm usually travelling um, to, to somewhere in the world. But I'm in Scotland, uh, looking forward to the Edinburgh Festival um, soon. Um, and also because we're in, in the thick of it, in installing the School of the Impossible into two schools in the local authority in, in um, central Scotland. Um, and to talk a bit about my work, gosh, I don't know where to, I really don't know where to start. <laughs> There's a lot um, to get through, to be fair. There's yeah. Um, the necessary space is uh, the organisation that I I run, and it it grew out of the work that I did with the National Theatre of Scotland, um, where essentially what I do is I put teams of artists into communities and into contexts that. Um, uh, use art, creativity, culture, placemaking um, to change things for the better. Um, and I do that across Scotland, across the UK and across the world. And it's, it's, it's what I've always done and I think what I'll always do. I don't know if that explains it enough. <laughs> well, that is good because I have lots of questions to unpick it further. So um, one of the sort of more immediate ones is the topics of your work, because it spans quite a few different focus areas, partly because of your practice, um, which we'll get onto as well. But more recently, I know a lot of your work has had a sort of climate focus, embodied creativity, leading to activism, just to sort of name a few very broad ones. So could you talk a little bit more about the main issues that your work addresses and give some examples of how you use art in those spaces to, to address those causes? Yeah, that's a good way of, of looking at it, I suppose. Um, I, I should mention that um, when 
just a bit of clarity, and we might come back to it. It's, it when when we launched the National Theatre of Scotland, we called it a theatre without walls um, because we didn't have a building and we very deliberately didn't have a building so that we could go into communities with artists and, and change things. Um, and what I call the necessary space is a theatre of opportunity, which uh, grew out of a, a reaction to uh, Augusta Boal's Theatre of the Oppressed. So um, my, my practice concerns itself with, um, with change, um, not just in terms of um, social and uh, community change, but also um, the opportunities and possibilities of change within art form and how um, different art forms and cross art form will um, change the way artists work as well so that that's a kind of foundational thing that that goes on but I have a, a, a wide range of um context issues um challenges um and opportunities that I like to uh, work within you mentioned um climate emergency and that is the that's the one that is occupying my mind most of the time. Um, because it really is a huge crisis and uh, without a sustainable <laughs> earth and environment, nothing else matters, uh, it really. Um, but in more local terms, that there's poverty is something that, that really um, gets under my skin. Um, and uh, equity uh not just economic equity but you know equity and uh, access to education or to any other um forms of um personal sustainability or family or community sustainability um and uh creativity uh is is a right i think uh for for everybody and not everybody has the same access or is in the same proximity to the opportunities that might be around for that. So I go into communities, not necessarily with a view that I'm, go I'm, I'm dealing with one issue or, um, or whatever, or, or even just, the, I'm not going in there and just looking at, at intersectionality. I'm going in, I'm looking at um, how communities and people function and listening with our and responding back with that, so it's it's relational, um, uh, and it, it tackles a, a wide range of local, personal, um, regional, national, international, um, political, spiritual, um, artistic issues and ways of being is is really what I what I do. I'll come back to climate emergency though because. As I say, that's the one that I think everybody needs to be um, really focused on. Yeah, so I think I would love to hear or have you explain more about the way that you use art in those spaces or creativity or imagination or whatever engagement method you employ in those spaces, how you do that in more of a practical sense. So if someone had never seen that being done before on a very ground level, what would that look like when you go into these spaces to tackle these sort of mega issues? 
Well, the, the reason I call it the necessary space, I, I borrowed that um, well with a slight twist from a company called The Necessary Stage in Singapore that was run by Alvin Tan. And I worked in Singapore with The Necessary Stage a long time ago um, when Singapore was just on the rise, actually. So it was it was late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and they, uh, they were taking great risks because of the, um, the, the censorship there and, and the former government. And I, I was just full of admiration for the, the, the risks that they took because it was based on humanity. Um, and uh, that's really what I, what I try and do. I, I, I create a space and it's, things have changed from way back then. We're in a completely different paradigm from where we were even a decade ago with the speed of change with the technological and information uh, revolution that we're in and climate emergency, all, all that. Um, the, we, we, we are not equipped politics, um, religion, education, all, all the big silos of society that, that, that have managed us out of this industrial age into this new one are not fit for, for, for purpose. So we need a space where we can um, open up without it being that, that sense of um, polarity that is um, being nurtured um, and, and without that sense of, of conflict um, or oppression. And that's why I call it opportunity. So what, I, what it looks like, to answer your question, is artists going into creating a space I mean, a, a, a virtual space or an actual space or going into a community and calling and, and, and that community being a space. Um, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Like in, in Shetland, it's an archipelago. So that was the space. It was a whole archipelago with main islands and, and little other islands and rural communities and urban communities within that archipelago. Um, in Jamaica, we were going into um, like uh, ghettos and yards, um, and and that was a very boundary. It, it, it was very bound by boundaries from where um, different gangs operated. So that that was defined um, by by boundaries, but also by those very tight communities. So we're, I'm working in physical spaces and spaces in your head, um, and it's about a dialogue and a give and a, 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 a relation between um, the, the people that we're engaging with and, and the artists and the art forms that will grow out of that. So uh, a lot of it is about narratives and stories and finding them. Um, and uh, a lot of it is about what resources you've got. Um, so if you're, if you're um, a well-resourced community will use all those resources. If you're well-networked, we'll connect with all of that. But if you're not, if you're at the other end of that spectrum and all, and you don't even have shoes on your feet or whatever, um, then we, we will find ways to be able to um, engage that community and tell that story in a form that reaches beyond the expectations and perceptions of what that community are. Sounds that's really big words that I'm using this as opposed to describe something that is really simple, which is we send artists into create spaces where we listen and turn um, people's lives uh, and uh, ways of being into story 
or exhibition or uh, publication or film or music or dance um, and we 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 make it coherent um, so that it exceeds um, the their own expectation and it, it, it blows away the perceptions of what that community is and is capable of. Yeah, so I think that leads really neatly onto a question I was going to ask later, but it's just such a great segue. I'm going to bring it in now. Um, is this idea of the theatre without walls that you mentioned? And so mm. just to reiterate for people listening, um, Simon, you were instrumental in founding Scotland's National Theatre. Um, and that was not something we had before. There was the National in London, but there wasn't one in Scotland. Um, and when it was founded, um, the sort of thinking behind it was, and you can talk more about this, was being a theatre without walls. And that is quite radically different, I would say, to most national theatres as the sort of institution that lives in a grand building and you can buy tickets to go and see. Um, so it would be great to hear a little bit more because I'm hearing the roots of a theatre without walls in exactly what, or the evolution probably, in what you've just described. So if you could talk more about your thinking as to why a national theatre was needed in Scotland and why it should look and function that way, I think that would be really interesting. Cool, yeah. Um, so I, I was part of the lobby for a national theatre um, and it took us seven years to, to get it into place because there had been for a hundred years a, a, a talk of a national company or a national theatre. And of course, Scotland did have the Scottish Theatre Company, which acted as a national company for a while until it went de defunct. Um, and it, it grew out of a growing confidence in Scotland, um, moving towards um, uh, the idea that Scotland should be uh, independent and, and govern it, itself. Um, and the artists of, of Scotland um, carried that argument um, throughout the, the, the 70s, 80s and, and, and 90s. Um, and the Federation of Scottish Theatre got together and, and actually it was, a, it was a clever ruse to try and get more money into the sector. Um, we said, what, what we really need is a, um, a national theatre and um, it should be supported by government um, because if we've got one in London, then we, we should have one in Scotland. Um, and we all got together with the, around that idea and really, really quickly, we realised that we, do, we had a national theatre and it was, its unique quality was that it was really diverse and that it was placed across the whole of Scotland and that it shouldn't live in any single building, that we should be celebrating the diversity of the of the kind of theatre that we make, because lots of that was about children and families theatre, it was theatre and education, it was theatre and community. There was loads and loads of artists and bands that came up through um, social and um, uh, uh, unions, um, like May Day celebrations or May Fest and uh, other things. So we recognise really quickly Scotland is very different from anywhere else. Um, and that should be reflected in the culture, uh, is reflected in the culture, and we should make a virtue of that. So we came up with this idea that our national theatre would be across all the stages in Scotland and all the art centres and all the schools and, the, and all, all the communities. And we started to model that. 
And I was really fortunate in being uh, one of the founding directors of the, the company when it was um, brought into play. Um, my job was as director of what we called LEARN, for want of a better word. I didn't like putting labels on it because um, my mission um, was to um, raise the awareness and the status of the kind of theatre that worked at grassroots um, and, and, and still went on to main stages. And to get the, the same amount of resource and the same amount of um, uh, kudos uh, around uh, working in these situations and, and circumstances. And over a period of 15 years, I think we achieved that. We felt, and, and this was a, a really clear statement when we launched the National Theatre of Scotland, a theatre without walls. We went to 10 different cities and towns um, across Scotland, and we opened with 10 different shows on the same night um, and in 2006, so that the National Theatre of Scotland um, opened in somewhere within a 20-minute drive of you. Um, and that's how we, we launched. Not one of those shows took place on a traditional stage. Every one of those shows had a, a professional cast and professional crew and directors and designers. And every one of those shows involved the community that it was launched in as well, either as performers or um, backstage or whatever. So it was a, a, a complete meeting of um, minds and intentions and connection with um, with the, the the people and artists of of Scotland, and that idea just blew everybody's minds because they could go to their national theatre in their local community hall or on a ferry or on a high-rise flat, or in a football ground, and in a derelict hotel, or um, in a field. And that's where we opened all our shows, um, and uh, the, the, the nation became, became the stage. And, uh, and many other countries have um, modelled that as well, and it's made a huge impact on, on the expectations and, and the opportunities that for uh, artists and teachers and communities in Scotland. That's amazing because it is so radically different to most countries that I've seen national theatre and so did you when you were going through that sort of seven-year process of lobbying and convincing everyone that needed convincing did you encounter much pushback on the idea of it being so community-centred or so I mean, literally serving nationally rather than in a central hub that people could come to. Because I do think, like, when I always hear national, you always think, oh, they'll do Hamlet twice a year and it'll be a celebrity and, you know, tickets will be expensive and maybe they'll have an education department, but it certainly won't be yeah. based in community centres in the Highlands, you know. Yeah. Um, and did you have much pushback on that sort of idea that if it's going to be high arts it needs to be exclusive and prestigious and that's somehow more valuable for a national than what it was that you were proposing? No is the short answer. It was such an exciting time. It really was because we were being radical and we were saying can we do this? Of course we can because we're actually we're already doing it and it's part of a continuum. Mm -hmm. So the, we, we did get pushed back um, and we did get, uh, and there was a level of expectation from the established 
um, networks of producing houses and the established um, uh, funding bodies um, and uh, and the establishment were a bit like, mm, it's a good idea, but um, in order to make this work and get money into the sector and have it happen, it would need to work like this, to which we all said, no, 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 it doesn't need to work like that. Um, because here's the beauty of it, and here's and here's how it serves um, uh, audiences, and here's how it, it connects with um, the the well, they weren't well, some other radical agendas like a Scottish Parliament, and Scottish Parliament um, coincided with um, the that lobbying uh, that was being done, and it was one of the first acts of the Scottish Parliament was to announce that there would be a national theatre um, for. For Scotland, so the 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 pushback was quite interesting. That there was uh, wasn't pushback. There was jockeying going on. People were saying, "Well, I'd, I'd like to be the director of the National <laughs> Theatre of Scotland, or I'd like to be I'd like to be part of that." And uh, and uh, it, as it took a while to get there, um, those those voices kind of dispersed and. And eventually we we got there, and it was a really small team. There were there were four of us, um, that launched um with uh twenty six shows in the first year, um and it and it grew, um, really quickly into uh, a, a kind of not just national and international force, because we did do um big plays on stages as well. Um, we the Black Watch was uh, a, a world phenomenon. Um, we did the James plays. We did um, Dunsinane. We uh, there were there were many many plays put on traditional stages as well as the work that I was doing um, in uh, communities. But all of it was under that idea that it's a theatre. Theatre without walls is not just about not having a building. It was we've got no boundaries. And we can make theatre um, in any way and in any space that we can, which is what I took into the necessary space. Yeah, it was. That's really interesting. I had never made the connection before about the Scottish Parliament being founded, and then one of the first acts was to found a national theatre. That's quite a cool national legacy, actually, for that to be such a, totally. yeah. a high priority in Parliament. So that's kind of a nice thing to to mull over. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so zooming back, so sort of zooming out even further, because that was, I guess, a seven, 15 year portion of your career. Mm -hmm. um, but if you had to look back over its sort of totality and how you got into the arts in general, how you took this participatory community focus in the arts, if you were to take a sort of step by step through that evolution or process, what would that look like over time? I never ever forget that I'm a product of community arts hmm. um, and and a product of a social experiment I found out um, later in my life. Um, so uh, even the, the, the primary school that I went to, um, I, I didn't realize it, but it was a feeder primary into this secondary school, which and again, it was it was a kind of radical thing, and it was at a time where they had what was called the raising of school leaving age, right? So you used to be able to leave school at the age of fifteen, and and everybody was divided into um, you're for university and you're for industry, 
right? Um, and when they raised the school leaving age, um, that got confused a bit. You know, so you didn't go into your apprenticeship or go off, off to university or further education. And what the school that I was in was, uh, they opened up, they, they had um, one of the first drama departments um, in, in Glasgow schools. There were a number of schools that opened up like this because the, the school population grew. And what were you going to do with all these people? Well, drama, it had a drama department, it had a really great art department, it had a fantastic music department, um, which half of the RSNO and SCO, um, uh, people still play with those, those um, orchestras from there. Um, they, they had uh, a lot of really young teachers. I didn't realise this at the time, that they were all really young. Um, and they taught the curriculum differently. Um, and I took it for granted that you had drama and art and music and, and sport and all, all this around you. And that led me into the Glasgow Arts Centre, which was within a network of other art centres that were across Scotland. And at the age of 15, for example, I found myself touring the world premiere of um, an opera called Ruth by Sir Lennox Berkeley in Belgium. Um, and I was from like a, a, a really rough um, housing estate um, in, in Glasgow with mass unemployment. And, and there I was at the age of, of, of 15 touring an opera in, in Belgium. That's amazing. Um, and and, and kind of taking it for granted. Um, and, and and it wasn't, it was, you know, we, we toured a proper orchestra with us as, as, as well. But that art centre, the Glasgow Art Centre, uh, which was Washington Street Art Centre, it, it, um, and there was, there were other opportunities like um, the Youth Opportunities Scheme and, um, and with loads of bands and loads of stuff came out of that. It was a, it was a social revolution that was going on that we weren't aware of. And I didn't realise that this secondary school that I, I was at was a social experiment using arts to engage um, with uh, young people at, at the time uh, and, and give them another form of uh, rounded education. Um, I was set to go to university to study politics, philosophy and English. And I found out there was a place called the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama where you could do your hobby and get a, a, get a job at the end of it. So I, I signed up for that. Um, and as I say, I've never forgotten that, it's just always been an intrinsic part of me that um, having, having that opportunity to learn violin um, and, and or find out who um, Shakespeare was or um, Brecht um, or, uh, you know, or be taken to the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. um, things like that were, were uh, I, I took for granted. And, I, and I've always just tried as best I can. The more I understood that that wasn't normal, the more I've tried um, as an artist and um, uh, activist, I suppose, I've, I've tried as best I can to give as many people that opportunity it, as, as well. So when I graduated from um, RSAMD, I was an actor, I was a director, I was a facilitator, I worked with youth, I worked with community. I never made a distinction between being on the stage of, of the Lyceum or making a movie. 
um, and being the next day um, in a uh, working with a, a, a youth theatre or a group of elderly people, um, it was all part of the the same thing. And I'd just been really lucky. Um, ended up being uh, part of a lot of arts and regeneration programs, like um, in Motherwell when the steel industry went down. They invested hugely in art and culture as a means of regenerating that that area. Um, I ran Cumbernauld Theatre for uh, 12 years, I think it was. Um, and then uh, I, I moved into um, the National Theatre of, of Scotland. So um, all of those positions have afforded me huge opportunities across the world. Um, and I've, I'm just forever grateful for it and never, ever let go of the idea that um, if, if I can do it, from a, a sink estate in in Glasgow, anybody anybody can do that. Yeah. I think we'd have to call that a pretty successful social experiment. <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you, the, Madeline, the, the amount of people that came through that school, um, and you, you're you're talking. Uh, it, it was what is it they call it now? An area of multiple deprivation, mm. but the, the poverty there was was proper proper poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and but when they stuck a violin in your hand, or the it's a bit like Sistema actually, mm -hmm. which which is happening in Raplock and came out of Venezuela. Different types of poverty, but and what the what they opened up was uh, there was a poverty of aspiration, um, which is a phrase that um, uh, one of our previous ministers used. Um, they opened they opened up uh, um, they, they got rid of that they they made it um, really clear that if you learned guitar or drums or violin or and you learned how to play in an orchestra or you were part of this drama club or um, uh, or you you exhibited um, your your artwork um, that you there were jobs and there were opportunities that that would could sustain you um and it it happened and it what and as i say seo rsno and loads of people came out simple minds came out of that school because they get a guitar put, put in their hand and they get access to a drum kit so the, it was it was a hugely successful um social experiment yeah, I mean, that's what we're aiming for generally, right, is the idea that it should be taken for granted that kids from anywhere and everywhere or anyone from anywhere and everywhere can and should be in those spaces on tour in Belgium with an orchestra or in the citizens or, you know, whatever. Um, that's amazing. And it's cool to hear that, you know, it's been proven over and over again, and I'm sure everyone listening knows this, but it is always great to hear about the case studies that just go phenomenally well and just prove what we talk about over and over and over again about access and equity being the answer to things like poverty, even if they're not the intuitive ones, they are the obvious ones that work over time. Yeah, yeah, completely. Wow. And I've got millions of stories that prove that um, and and studies with data that will prove that. And I, I, I no longer take place or, or um, have those arguments with people because it, it for me, it is a given. It's completely a, a, a given. 
Well, I think this sort of leads on quite neatly into what next, right? And looking ahead to the future and change making and all of these things. Um, and you and I have talked about this quite a bit you know, off the podcast, but looking ahead to the future, what do you think is the most crucial thing that change makers should be focusing on? So if you were to make a guess at where we should all focus our energy so we're ready for this sort of whatever comes next, what do you think that would look like? It, it's it's climate emergency and climate justice. Um, and climate emergency is the obvious thing. Just watch the news. Um, just look out your window. It's it's happening. It's now, and it's really, really urgent. Three, well, two, two stats that really got me. Um, there will the, the the amount of carbon and heat that's getting pumped into the atmosphere on a daily basis is the equivalent of six hundred thousand um, nuclear uh, first generation nuclear bombs on a daily basis is going off. Right, we know that. It's proven, it's measured, that's happening, right? Um, and the, the other one that, that gets me is a, within the next 30 years, 1.5 billion people will be displaced by um, uh, climate change. We're already seeing that. We're already seeing archipelagos in the South Pacific completely disappearing and people having to be rehoused. We're seeing landslides everywhere. We're, 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 we're seeing forests and fire. We know that that is, that is happening right now. But by in, in the next 30, 1.5 billion. When you look at uh, the war in Ukraine and the, you know that there's between 5 and 10 million people have been displaced by that, look at the impact that's had um, on the world. 1.5 billion people um, over the next 30 is just those two facts alone uh, put that into put climate emergency into perspective. I won't even go into the ideas of if if the the oceans trip over into the wrong um, form of acidity uh, or alkalinity, we're all goosed. Um, and that there are places in the world that are only have like one or two more uh, harvests out of the soil that can get. It's terrifying, but there is hope and we can change it. And I'm looking at what the opportunities are for, for all of that. So that that is where artists can help raise awareness and help change behaviours. We did it we, and slightly at COP26 in, in Glasgow. We changed the tone of the argument when they were um, arguing about how are we going to trade carbon in the future um, we, the artists and the activists managed to change the tone of that argument uh, simply by, by being there. But climate justice is a, is a different thing, and it, I think that goes under the radar. There's no climate change, uh, or there's no changing in, uh, around climate change without climate justice. And you look at, you talk to in, indigenous communities um, and they are looking agog at what is happening to the, their, their land and our relationship to, to land. Right? So indigenous communities have always viewed themselves as part of this of, of nature. You look at um, uh, uh, communities that you look at colonization. And that is a thing that everybody's recognizing now what the, the costs of colonization 
have been and and still are. And you look at corporations who are um, still um, perpetuating colonization in different forms, albeit it might be digital, it might be um, through philanthropy. There's There are massive geopolitical um, things at stake here that really need uh, to, to change. And I think the artists and the teachers of the world are where that voice is going to come. In Scotland, we saw lots of different change happening. Um, I go back to when this, in this, the Scottish Enlightenment and how that changed the world. I think in a geopolitical global um, need to change in this new paradigm, it's the artists and the shamans and the teachers who are going to make that, that change because it's completely necessary. How to do that um, is, is, is just believe in, in the incremental, small incremental stuff that you can do with, uh, with people and with community, because the more you do it, the more uh, you can't return um, from it. And I I'm a bit evangelical about this. I think that's where we all need to focus our energies um, to enable us to um, survive and sustain and 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 thrive. And there's never a more important time for artists in the world to have that purpose um, because it's 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 just so essential. So what I'm doing with the necessary space is opening up necessary spaces to have the dialogue, to have that dialogue without the the polarity or without the 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 politics that are preventing progress. Um, to to have personal change that means opening up to um, other possibilities and. Um, and become and, and having that aspiration beyond what you are being told is is for you, and um, so that's that's what's next. And I, I keep opening up little spaces that whether that's I'm working with Scottish Recovery Consortium um, about overcoming um, addiction. I'm working with Plateau Cultural to put the um, School of the Impossible and open portals for. Um, uh, the school of the impossible across the world. I'm working with um, several different countries on um, the uh, the confluence of the birds, which is an ongoing um, climate reality project. Um, it's currently in seven different countries, um, and um, I'm, I'm also working with uh, uh, artists and organisations to. Um, to make uh, what, what, what's place making, um, you know, to change communities and people's connection with their own, their own communities by installing um, uh, large scale site specific work um, as well. So lots of plates are spinning, um, but the 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 umbrella part of that is uh, creating necessary spaces for for dialogue and connection. Amazing. Thank you. And just to add to that, in case anyone listening is like equally as riled up as I am now to go and make change and is stuck about how to, um, at the end of August 2022, I'm not sure when this podcast comes out in um, this episode, but um, ITAC is launching um, the Teaching Artistry for Social Impact online course. 
It's totally free and the case studies that the course is based on are all of our ITAC impact climate projects that we commissioned to undertake work addressing climate issues in the community. There are examples of really good practice, but it also guides you through how to build your own project. So things like stakeholder mapping, logic models, theories of change is all there. So if you share Simon's commitment to open up these spaces and to undertake this work, but you're not quite there yet in your own practice, I want to signpost that because it is a great way to join that movement that Simon's describing. Can I jump in there, Madeline? Because that yeah. is so vital. Yeah. And I was on a podcast earlier on today where a similar question was asked about how about artists and them making the transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and this course that you're talking about is, is a complete gift. Because if you are an artist and you're listening to this, whether you're already engaged in in, in social change or or whatever, um, it, the the joy you get out of the purpose of your art and making that that change is is completely transformational. And what that course does um, from brilliant minds across the world um, is is open all that up um, for you. Um, so I, I, I think that's that's part of what this movement needs to be, and we have the tools now to be able to to share it in all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The power of networks and people being very generous with their time and expertise, and that's really where things are going and can be built upon. So I encourage everyone to have a look if you are intrigued. Um, and Simon, I'm conscious of time because I sort of always get carried away with you on tangents and discussions. So before I do any of that, I, we always wrap up an episode with asking a few sort of quick fire questions just to get to know people and what really keeps them sort of conceptually and inspired in their work. Um, so if you don't mind, I will jump into those now. Yeah. Um, okay, so here we go. Who inspires you? Oh gosh, loads of people. Um, Eric Booth, um, uh, Vandana Shiva, um, Liz Lerman, um, Brenny Brown. That, that, that's that's a good all for because they, they their minds are amazing and they're they're fearless. Yeah. Okay, and what keeps you motivated? Uh, meeting people, making connections. And where are you the most grounded? In a room with um, a bunch of strangers who are full of um, expectation and, uh, and, and, and want to play. And how do you stay focused? Play. <laughs> play and flow. Make, being joyful. About about what it is that you, that you do, and knowing that it 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 works. And then finally, why change? That's an interesting one. Changes is, is is a state of being. That is what you or or becoming. I have this thing that it, it, um, I discovered many years ago. Uh, the world is chaos, right? Like. Glycan, the father of the chaos theory, described it as a, a science of process other than state, of becoming rather than being. That, to me, was the science behind what art does. 
So um, why change? Because you are change. You are never just being. You are always becoming. Um, and that's that's the that's what happens in a necessary space is uh, you are in flow with everything. God, that sounded really wise. <laughs> I'm also very impressed. You have quotes off the top of your head. Um, amazing. Well, and also I will say that Simon will put links to your website and how people can sort of follow and keep up with you in the show notes. So um, we scratched the surface of all of that here in like half an hour, 40 minutes, but there are ways to keep up with Simon and his work and all of the amazing things that are happening. So go to the show notes to find those. Um, Simon, thank you so, so much for taking the time um, out of changing the world to come and chat to us for a bit. Um, I'm so excited for people to hear this and understand a bit more about what's possible. So thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you. And we're back. Uh, Madeline, uh, you're right. I mean, Simon is a (laughs) real hero of sorts. I was so just taken with many of the the themes of the conversation about sort of reimagination, reconstitution, and and thinking deeply about changing the role and the work of artists and institutions in our lives, in our communities, in societies. I, give me your biggest takeaways from this conversation. So I had a couple. So one which I think you probably hear me realize in the in the interview is how linked and I hadn't noticed this before or known this before how linked the launch of our Scottish Parliament was and the launch of our devolved way of governing in in the way that we have it now is linked or was linked to the launch of a theatre a national theatre and I think that is something I'm really proud to know because I really think you can measure the worth of a place or a country or whatever by how it supports its communities and how it, the role of arts and culture. And so for one of the first acts of our parliament to be to formalise our national theatre, I just love that. I think that's so exciting. And anyone who sort of keeps up with Scottish politics will know we have a new independence referendum happening in the near future and um, just been announced. And so all of these things are kind of interesting to remember or to realise as this new campaign kicks off and as we start to look at what our national identity is what it could be and knowing the national theater was quite a big part of that beginning is is pretty cool what what were yours what were some of your takeaways absolutely well i just i want to pause before i share my big takeaways to just reflect on that i also spent some time in scotland um doing uh some schooling and you know I loved my trips across uh, from Glasgow to Edinburgh. And one of my favorite things that I would do just about every time was to visit the Scottish Parliament. And I would second that in not only that one of their first acts was creating a national theater, but the entire ground level, once you go sort of past security, is an art exhibit. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it is a little bit of a museum and the space is highly democratized. So I love that anyone who is attending anything within um within the house you know is traveling through both history and artistic practice before they engage in the political conversations but the second thing that i love is that the building itself is a work of art and is incredibly inviting both in terms of the aesthetics and also in terms of at least my experience when i've been there 
if they're not engaged in actual political debate, you can just walk on the floor. Like it's, I mean, yeah. compared to the United States, you cannot just walk on the floor of the House of Representatives. Sure. You get in some big trouble. And so it's, it's just very cool. I think that um, that same type of sort of embodied practice, um, if you view art making in a similar vein as political engagement, which I happen to believe that the way that Simon talks about sort of these um, elements of embodied practice and using your artistic practice for cause related work, it's actually quite similar to the work of decision makers, at least within the Scottish context. And so I think that's a really interesting segue because my takeaway was truly about how interdisciplinary work, be it arts and politics, uh, environment, um, you know, climate change work that that you all discuss, or even um, the formation of these institutions like the National Theater can help us rethink our role and our practice as both artists and institutions. And that for me was sort of an aha moment where I guess I have always assumed that art makers, theater makers, dance and music makers are constantly evolving. And I think that that's a little bit of a false assumption. I think a lot of people fall into their practice and that is what they do. And what Simon sort of highlighted for me is that when we do work cross-disciplinary, it almost forces us to rethink our artistic practice and evolve and respond to the world around us. And that brings out bigger and better creativity and envisioning of solutions and sort of ownership of the futures that we are creating. And then take that one step further to the role of institutions in society, the same thing happens. And that phenomena is something that really, really interests me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Something you said at the beginning there that's just triggered a wee memory for me when you said the democratized nature of the space. Um, I remember I used to work a lot in the parliament with my old job when we bring kids there and we do art projects to do the citizenship. And I had a group of teenagers in and we were walking on the floor of the, the debating chamber and we bumped into an MSP and we said, oh, you know, sorry, do you need to get us, do you need us to get out the way or something? And they said, oh, no, it's your building, it's your parliament, <laughs> you know, and I thought, huh, that's a really lovely That's amazing. That well, and then I thought, what a great ethos to then carry over to our national theatre too. And so you hear Simon start to talk about, well, no, why would it be in some big impressive building in the capital? It would be in every community hall, every church hall, every community centre from way up in the highlands off to the coast on the wee islands and all of that and it's like well yeah it's your theatre like it's that's the whole point is that it's for everyone it's not just this elite little thing that a few people get to enjoy and I think as you said with the role of institutions and with reimagining the constant evolution of what those could be based on mission statements you know which are to serve their national people it's a really nice and kind of obvious when you think about it, but not common approach to instituting some of that. And I think those crossovers that I'm starting to recognize after that chat with Simon. Well, first, you sort of buried the lead there. You were doing <laughs> what with young people? Making art about uh, civic engagement within the Scottish Parliament. I love that. That should be a podcast episode um, in and of itself. <laughs> Let's go back in the history of Madeline McGurk. Um, <laughs> but secondly, 
I think you're right. And that is something that often happens. And I'm going to just cite a book that I think I reference in literally every uh, piece of academic writing I do, which is Anne Bamford's um, book on sort of the status of, of arts education within public policy. It's called The Wow Factor. I'll drop the link in the show notes. But, you know, she concluded after a review of like every country, pretty much uh, their policies regarding arts and cultural education that it's often lip service. You know, we'll write things into policy and proclaim these big statements but there's really no follow through on the implementation. And if it happens, it happens because of individuals, right, that are carrying that banner. And I think the same thing happens with exactly, as you said, these mission statements of big institutions, be it the parliament or be it the national theater. And this idea that it is, you know, we often say the, the Capitol building in the U.S. is the people's house. Yet there's huge security and, and mm. gates and fences and whatever. And for good reason. I mean, we dealt mm -hmm. with an insurrection last year and, and I get it. But I love that that MSP said that out loud mm -hmm. to these young creatives who were there because that reinforces like it's not just engraved on the building. It is actually something that is believed from the people within the building. Mm -hmm. And further, that the National Theater is not just this big, magnificent building on a central square in the capital mm -hmm. city but instead is present, is omnipresent, if you will, in yeah. these many, many communities from, as you say, the tiny islands on the coast <laughs> to the highlands, um, to the larger cities um, throughout the country. And that is something that is interesting and it's something interesting to grapple with. Right now we're actually um, a creative generation working on a project with a, a fairly prominent museum. Um, and the question that continues to come up um, and I'm sure we will talk about this project as it becomes more public on the podcast, is sort of what is the role of these cultural institutions mm -hmm. in instigating or sort of catalyzing this type of uh, creativity building work with young people? And, you know, one, there's questions of access and, and equity of access. There's um, certainly questions about relationships to other institutions like the public school system. But beyond that, what I keep landing on every time we have these big theoretical conversations is I'm not sure that there is a role that needs to be articulated for one well-off, you know, highly funded cultural institution. But instead, the change that might advance this discourse is the notion that museums of all stripes can be a catalyst in their community be it, you know, the Guggenheim in New York City, LACMA in Los Angeles, you know, the Field Museum in Chicago, or the Community Museum of, mm -hmm. you know, XYZ County, you know, of that is made up of tiny little artifacts of from nature and um, the social strata of life in that place. And you know, it's really interesting because we've seen evidence of those types of things where the community ownership of what one might deem as being a cultural institution is so powerful in places where the people are contributing to the institution just as much as the institution is contributing to the collection of people. And that's something that I think we need to, as a sector, drastically rethink. It is not just about preserving the building and putting up the best art on the stage mm -hmm. or on the walls. It really is about 
catalyzing community so that their reflection can be showcased in these physical yeah. or non-physical spaces. Yeah, I'm, I was going to quote uh, um, Eric's book. So Eric Booth wrote a book called Tending the Perennials, right? And he, anyone who knows him knows he loves like etymology of words. And near the beginning, he talks about the etymology of the word culture. And I am going to butcher this, so I'm not going to try and remember word for word what that etymology is. But it's in his book and you can go and read it. It's fabulous. But it's something to do with everything and anything around you like the the place in which you exist or is something like that and I think how far some places have gotten from being a reflection or a representation or anything to do with what's going on around them and instead or their version of culture is lifting up this really elite thing that some people get to have access to if you can pay for a ticket and things like that and it's that the notion of what some people's definition of culture is now versus what it started as, I think is a real il- illustration of what you've just described, that mm-hmm. what are you there to do and what do you believe culture is? If it's not this original thing that we should all have access to and recognise ourselves in. Um, yeah, I, I won't try and quote it specifically because I will definitely get it wrong. <laughs> well, we'll certainly put the link to that book, which I have also read and I'm actually staring at on my bookshelf right now. Ah! Um, <laughs> I will put that link uh, in the show notes as well. You know, that is sort of one of the big questions of our time. And um, I know we're running out of time here today, but mm. just to say that, you know, as we grapple with the impacts of the the multitude of pandemics of the last several years, be it the COVID-19 pandemic or the rising um, prominence of the climate crisis or the unrest in our communities um, due to racialized violence, right? The, the notion that we can all work together on something and bring a little piece of ourselves to the development of not only a, a cause, right, that doesn't have any physicality to it but the idea that we can also embody those causes be it Scottish national identity climate uh, change resistance social justice movements that we can do that in forms of something like a national theater or a collective project and and that to me gives me it just gives me so much hope to be honest mm-hmm. um and the potential for impact is inspiring yeah I think as with anything the fact people are asking the questions makes me very hopeful that someone and multiple people are at least keen to find the answer and sort it you know I'd be much more worried if nobody was ever examining it right Mm -hmm. and I want those people to be artists teaching artists young artists Mm -hmm. (laughs) artists of all all different um all different walks because that is where I feel like I don't have another phrase, but, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea that we can actually do it and we can see it and we can be it. Um, And that is, I think, the the high potential of um, creative practice, say, in this case, of Simon Sharkey theater making. Um, So, Madeline, we are out of time today, unfortunately. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, a very spirited interview and conversation. It is great to be with you, as always. Thank you so much. All right. We'll catch you next time, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative change makers around the world, 
please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. This episode was produced by Madeline McGurk. Executive editor is me, Jeff M. Poulin. Artwork by Bridget Woodbury. Our digital media producer is Daniel Stanley. This podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support.